Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Dr. Samantha Montano, who became interested in disasters following a trip to New Orleans immediately after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure. She spent years in New Orleans working with various nonprofits on recovery efforts related to both Katrina and the BP oil disaster in 2010. She is currently an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She has taught courses on disaster preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation, vulnerable populations in disaster, the political and legal foundations of emergency management, disaster communications, and voluntary organizations active in disaster. She is also the co-founder of the Center for Climate Adaptation Research. Uh, she's written for and has been interviewed by a wide variety of publications, and her latest book is titled Disasterology, Dispatches from the Frontlines of the Climate Crisis, which is now available. So check it out. Thanks for joining us, Samantha. Thanks for having me. I, we appreciate it. Um, can we talk a little bit about your personal background, how you became interested in this topic? You were in New Orleans following Katrina and then also after the BP oil spill. Yeah, so my kind of first foray into the disaster world was after Hurricane Katrina and the levee failure. I uh, grew up in Maine, but I had gone down to New Orleans to volunteer and help with, you know, gutting houses, help rebuilding houses. And when I got there, I was just completely shocked by the extent of the impacts in the city, but also the extent of need and um, you know how little help there was for certain parts of the city and, and kind of how much help was needed. And so I decided to move to New Orleans. Uh, and so I lived there for several years working with a whole bunch of different recovery organizations that were doing everything from rebuilding to helping fill out insurance paperwork to helping um, with, you know, bringing sustainability and kind of like environmental concerns to the forefront of the recovery process, uh, doing volunteer coordinating of all the other volunteers that were coming down to the city that, you know, kind of uh, that kind of stuff. Um, and then while I was living there, the BP oil disaster happened uh, and some of the environmental groups that I had been working with in the city kind of moved their efforts down to the coastline to help with the response and their recovery. And so um, through both of those experiences and then also going to a kind of a few other disasters to volunteer around that time, I started to get the sense uh, that there were some major issues in how we were approaching not just the response to these disasters, but to the recovery itself. And so that kind of led me down a path of going to grad school and doing research to kind of understand better the kind of like broader systemic problems and kind of the policy solutions that are needed to address disasters. What was the response like when you were down there from the local community? Uh, were you working with like local community groups and how attached were they to like the existing nonprofit infrastructure of, of disaster response? Yeah. So uh, in New Orleans, post Katrina, there was a, a slightly unique uh, kind of experience within the nonprofit sector um, in that there were so many nonprofits in New Orleans post Katrina. You had everybody from, you know, these massive national, even some international groups, foundations that were there doing work. And then you had like 
uh, all the way down to, you know, local New Orleanians who were working out of their friend's half gutted kitchen, kind of scraping <laughs> things together to meet needs in the city. So there was just this, you know, massive range of kind of who was involved under this heading of the kind of more informal uh, aspect of the emergency management system. Um, and so, you know, um, there was because you have so many different people coming to recovery with so many different backgrounds and experiences, um, you know, there were kind of a, a lot of uh, different approaches that were taken, um, but certainly New Orleanians were um, at the forefront of those recovery efforts um, and uh, in many cases were leading and running their own groups that were helping uh, with the overall recovery. Can you talk about the difference between, say, the state apparatus's response to disaster management, uh, disaster recovery, and then also, and we can get into some of the language too, because I watched a couple of your interviews online before we did this, and I thought it was interesting, the, the language of like natural disasters and, and hazards and the difference between hazards and disasters. I'd like to get into some of that as well, but I was interested more broadly in, you know, one of the problems I think many people have noted, especially like liberal progressive folks, is like the state sort of stepping away from this, uh, these activities for any number of reasons, you know, being defunded, elements of it being privatized. Like, what was the government's response to this? And what has been like your sort of take on how much the government should be doing, how much it's not doing, and then how much the nonprofit sector is like filling in for things that the state would otherwise do or should otherwise do? according to some. Sure, <laughs> sure. So um, uh, kind of the best way to understand this is that in the United States, the approach that we take to or that the government takes to emergency management is a limited intervention model. So the kind of ideology that they're using is that government, particularly the federal government, should be involved in emergency management, involved in the response and recovery, but they should really be involved in kind of a limited way. The priority is for people to use their own resources to recover, to rely on insurance. Um, and when people don't have enough resources to go through recovery, then they should be turning to the nonprofit sector uh, to kind of fill those gaps. And then government will give kind of a, a little bit of assistance. And um, so that, that's kind of the prevailing approach that we see across the country. Uh, that runs into a few problems, uh, namely that we are seeing an increased risk across the country. Very often we're seeing an increase in need across the country related to disasters. And um, the nonprofit sector uh, does a lot of really great work. Um, and by nonprofit sector, I mean everybody from the Red Cross down to like mutual aid groups. Um, they do really great and important work, but uh, they don't have the resources to necessarily meet all of these needs across the country. And uh, because um, many of those efforts are kind of uh, hyper informal and emergent uh, to when the disaster happens, of thinking, especially of some of these mutual aid groups, they don't necessarily have the infrastructure and kind of the support to 
actually meet all of these needs across the country, right? They're still pretty focused on those emergency kind of life-saving needs rather than that long-term support that's really needed to go years into a recovery. So, um, that's kind of the first problem, right, is that if if individuals on their own don't have the resources to get themselves through recovery, if insurance isn't enough or people don't have insurance and the nonprofit sector isn't able to adequately meet those needs, then we're left with government. And so uh, we have seen uh, increasingly a, a greater involvement of specifically the federal government in recovery across the country. Um, I know sometimes it, it might not feel that way because it still seems like there's so many unmet needs in these communities, but when you look at how much money is being spent uh, through FEMA, when you look at kind of the development of recovery programs within FEMA into HUD, you start to kind of see this expansion of federal involvement, specifically as it relates to individual and household recovery. Um, and again, whether or not those programs are enough is um, something that is, can be debated and is debated. Um, I think what we can say, and there's support for this in the research as well, is that there are still people who are not having their needs met. We're not meeting people's needs really effectively. We're not meeting people's needs efficiently. And we aren't um, taking an equitable approach to recovery. So certainly there is a need for changes in how the government is approaching emergency management and recovery specifically. Um, exactly what the role of the federal government should be is kind of part of a much broader political conversation about the role of government. Do you have any of the numbers on how much the federal government spends yearly on disaster management, emergency management? Um, <laughs> I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Um, as we were talking, I can look um, for the latest number. But um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, into the billions of dollars, especially in recent years. Yeah, I was wondering what the budget is. The, the reason I'm wondering what the budget is is so I can take a shot at our federal policies because of the amount of money uh, we spend on like, you know, uh, $850 billion a year on a military and so on and so forth. And I say that as a veteran and as a, someone who knows that that money doesn't go towards veterans and people on the ground, but towards weapon systems and defense contractors and all kinds of things. So there's like all this money, including tax cuts for the rich and tax cuts for corporations that like, it seems pretty clear to me, like the EPA that operates on like a $7 billion a year budget. Uh, I was just assuming that this is likely the same for emergency management agencies. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, the other thing here too, is that we, when we see money being spent on emergency management, it's primarily related to response so or and recovery like a disaster has happened now we have to pick up the bill um kind of thing so if you go back um again these i'm pulling these off the top of my head but if you go back to the 2017 hurricane season after harvey irma and maria fema was spending like 200 million dollars a day on response and recovery efforts um with fema having a bigger role in the covid response right now i think last I saw they were spending 
over $300 million a day. So huge, huge amounts of money being directed towards these response and recovery efforts, uh, but much less money being directed towards mitigation and preparedness, all of those things that you want to do ahead of time to try and prevent these disasters from happening in the first place, making sure that we're ready for those disasters when they do happen. So, um, you know, when you do the cost benefit analysis, uh, there's findings that for every $1 that the federal government spends on mitigation, they save $6 in response and recovery. So uh, certainly there's a mismatch in how funding is uh, being used within emergency management. And then to your point, certainly when you look across the entirety of the federal budget, um, there are certainly disproportional budgets uh, agency to agency. Yeah, no, our priorities are all screwed up uh, speaking for myself. But the uh, I wanted to ask if we could back up just for a second to get you to sort of define some of this. So can we talk about you, you make this uh, critique that I really liked in a, in a previous interview of yours that I watched about using the term natural disaster, and some of this is tied to what you had just said about mitigation. Uh, can you sort of talk about the language that we'll use sort of for the rest of the conversation, or at least how you use it? Sure, yeah. So when we talk about hurricanes or earthquakes or tornadoes that have happened, the way we describe those events is by using this term natural disaster. That term is actually a misnomer and problematic in several ways. Um, primarily the issue is that it uh, kind of revokes human responsibility for that disaster occurring. So um, the distinction that has to be made here is between a hazard and a disaster. So a hazard may be natural, right? A, an earthquake in California happening, that's a, a natural occurrence, um, but that earthquake actually causing buildings to fall down, causing you know people to be trapped under rubble, causing us to need to do search and rescue and have a medical response and to go through recovery. All of that part is the actual disaster. So it's when that hazard interacts with us and overwhelms the community that it becomes a disaster. Um, and you know the the reason that that hazard has interacted with us in this way is because of decisions that we've made about where we live how we build um whether or not we've you know updated the building codes in california to withstand a 7.0 earthquake uh you know there's all of these you know human made decisions that are leading to that disaster actually occurring and it actually being a disaster so um when we use that term natural disaster it, it kind of implies that these events are just that natural and that we don't really have any control over that. Um, whereas if you view a disaster as being the product of these policy decisions or, or these various human decisions, then you have the opportunity to actually do something about them. You have the opportunity to say, well, if the reason that building fell down is because we don't have strong enough building codes here, then we can update the building codes and retrofit this building and hopefully it doesn't fall down next time. Um, so it, it allows for that prevention and those, you know, mitigation efforts to be done. Do you see people increasingly discussing this in the way that you're discussing it within the field? 
because it seems like in the in the midst of of the pandemic, we're also bringing up not just the immediate political decisions people make or don't make, but it has allowed us to talk about some of these historical injustices and, and systemic problems. We see that black and brown communities, people who are poor, indigenous communities. I mean, we're talking to you from a Rust Belt city that has been like totally left behind for 40 years, let alone in the last 12 months where local political leadership has just been like, hey, wear masks, don't wear masks, do whatever you want. Our city's one third black. And of course, the people who have been hit the hardest are people in those black neighborhoods. So it's like, you know, the, the decisions, but also that that the historical injustices that underpin it all. Yeah, definitely. I The idea that disasters aren't natural is actually a very old idea within disaster research. Um, you, you know, you can go back to the 1960s, 1970s and see academic articles being written by various disaster researchers around the world saying this term is a problem and that it's, you know, everything I just described. So within disaster research, this is a very old idea. Um, to your point, I, I do see it talked about more in kind of the mainstream. Um, I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think as we have these broader conversations about inequality and, uh, and those conversations move more into the mainstream, there is a, a really kind of obvious connection to disasters. Um, and, you know, even to something like COVID, as you described, I think because it is um, a catastrophe on such a, a large scale, it helps to make those disparities more visible. And I think it helps people to see where one policy decision led to this outcome um, and, or, or multiple policy decisions have led to these outcomes. And so I think uh, there, there's kind of this real life example that everybody's experiencing right now that has kind of helped to um, to kind of illuminate these different connections. Um, at the same time, also, I think the climate conversation is coming into play here in a really important way, too. Sometimes I see people say the term natural disasters is incorrect now because these disasters are influenced by climate change. And that is like partially true, but they were still not natural even without climate change, right? Climate change certainly like underlies this argument and adds this other factor as uh, as a, another factor of human involvement that is changing these hazards and these disasters. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, that kind of pulling apart of understanding these climate related disasters and kind of understanding how um, how climate change is impacting these hazards and therefore these disasters and how that interacts with policy decisions. That's all kind of out in the ether and, and even kind of the mainstream much more than it, it ever has been before. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately. How about pandemics? Do they fall uh, within the category of a disaster? Yeah, <laughs> this is a great question. So yeah, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Amanda Savada and I actually wrote uh, an argument uh, many months ago at this point, um, explaining uh, the need to kind of conceptualize the pandemic within a hazard event framework, as we would call it. Um, so uh, one thing to point out here is not every disaster that happens is a disaster. We have emergencies, disasters, and catastrophes. Those are kind of our, our three big categories of hazard events. Uh, so emergencies are, on the smaller side of things, although still significant, so like a large apartment fire, you know, a pileup on a highway, 
those are going to require local resources to come in and address those needs. A disaster is kind of um, more, you know, uh, more of a traditional, so like a, a Joplin tornado, for example, would be a disaster where you're having to bring resources in from the outside to address those needs. Uh, catastrophe is much more expansive. It's covering, you know, an entire region, even an entire country. Um, it is on the scope and scale that local leadership is completely overwhelmed. Help needs to come from the outside. So that's your Hurricane Katrina, your Hurricane Maria. So um, in terms of the pandemic, I would argue that it is falls most closely in with that catastrophe category. Obviously, it's affected not only the entire country, but the entire world and, and for an extended period of time. Um, so uh, yes, it, it fits within our, our framework and kind of the purview of emergency management. Wow, thank you for explaining that. That, that makes everything yeah. a lot clearer. How about wars and refugees? Where do those fall inside? And I'm sorry, I'm not going to like name every <laughs> horrific thing that's happening no, that's in okay. the world and ask you to categorize it for us. But I, there are some things that I'm wondering. <laughs> no, that's okay. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, um, this this gets a, a little bit more blurry. Um, kind of the traditional conceptualization of these different types of hazard events has said that war is a, a separate category um, because it's based in conflict. It's like a conflict-based event versus a, a consensus-based event. Um, that, that's the traditional thinking in, in emergency management. I think that there is an argument to be made that certain acts of war fall within our kind of conceptualization or traditional conceptualization, um, something like genocide. I think you, you can kind of categorize um, within this scale. Um, you know, even something like 9-11, for example, we talk about that as being a disaster, um, even though it has this connection to terrorism and eventually to war. Um, but kind of as it's, uh, you know, the acute event of 9-11 um, falls, you know, within within the large scale disaster category, certainly. So, um, you know, and even in terms of refugees, um, you know, you have uh you know, there there's definitely a lot of overlap, a lot of the same kind of humanitarian groups that are involved in a disaster also are involved in refugee crises. Um, so um, I I would argue <laughs> that they fall within the within the scale. I think you might get slightly different answers from different researchers. Yeah, I was even thinking about gun violence in the U.S. I mean, it seems to me that especially in some uh, communities where people are being killed at like an insane rate. And this is both uh, violence from the community, but then also violence, say from police. Um, mm -hmm. it seems like all of these things you like, you, so you're examining each of these as like anything that happens in the news. Are, do you just say to yourself, okay, like you start categorizing it. Does this fit? Does it not fit? How could it fit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, gun violence is an interesting one. So I would say like a mass shooting event, like the Las Vegas shooting, for example, falls into this large scale emergency kind of low end disaster type category. Um, and that would be true for kind of like any acute mass shooting event. Um, but uh, then you also have to look at like persistent gun violence, persistent police brutality across the country. And those are, uh, you know, much more chronic issues. Um, again, kind of the, um, the kind of like acute moments of those events 
uh, and the, you know, the, um, the like protests that arise around them kind of fall within this framework. Um, but the, the way you approach preventing them is uh, much different than how you kind of approach, um, approach preventing some of the other kind of more traditional natural hazards. Do you get in trouble for making, like, do they want you to just stick to responding to disasters instead of talking about, like, the mitigating part, which would then, like, bring you into the category of, like, policy? Like, are there people that, is there, like, pressure, institutional pressure from somebody or somewhere that's, like, stick to what we do afterwards, stop giving policy recommendations because we'll have to significantly change our policies? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm pretty lucky in the sense that I, I have uh, I'm pretty secure in my academic freedom to uh, talk about these various issues. Um, but um, I will say that uh, emergency managers, you know, people who are actually working in emergency management agencies and managing these events on a daily basis, they do have to watch or walk a kind of a, a very fine political line, um, which can be really frustrating for them. Um, there is definitely uh, a sentiment among some elected officials that, uh, you know, emergency management needs to kind of be focused on response and go in, deal with the crisis and then be done with it. Um, you know, we get a lot of, or, or we hear a lot of politicians saying, um, you know, don't politicize the disaster. We're not talking about climate change now. We're not talking about policy changes now. Um, and that's frustrating, right? Because that, you know, those are, that that's how we've ended up here. <laughs> like that's how we've ended up in this crisis. And yeah, obviously we need to be prioritizing those life-saving needs in the moment, but we have to talk about these broader issues at some point. And if you just keep waiting for there not to be a disaster, we'll never get to talk about those things, which of course is <laughs> what, what those politicians are, are getting at. Um, and so it, it is definitely um, a, a really kind of a tricky political uh, atmosphere to navigate. I will say, though, that emergency managers, as focused as they are on the kind of day-to-day -day operational tasks that they do, there is a, a kind of a growing um, a growing understanding within the profession, I think, um, especially in some parts of the country, that emergency managers do have kind of a bigger role to play in terms of recommending policy and and kind of talking with uh, the elected officials in their community about what the policies are that are creating these conditions leading to these disasters. Right. I'm assuming people want more and more answers as they experience more and more of these disasters. Yeah, definitely. I think there is a kind of a real hunger across the country to kind of understand why all of these disasters are happening and to um, to be hearing more about what is being done to address them. Uh, you know, these disasters are in the news when they happen and, you know, the media, well, <laughs> most of the time, the media covers the response to these disasters, but then they kind of disappear. And I think as we see more communities experiencing these events, there is a greater understanding across the country. Well, you know, actually recovery lasts for many years and communities are getting hit repetitively. They're getting stuck in these cycles of recovery. 
I, you know, my, you know, the next town over for me has been trying to get mitigation funding to do a buyout program and they can't, what's going on. Um, and so I, again, I think, especially kind of as part of these conversations about climate change and the need for climate adaptation are growing, kind of emergency management is getting kind of swept up in that. Um, but it, uh, it, it's kind of a, a weird, uh, policy area and kind of like a, a weird profession that uh, you don't really know much about unless you've been through a disaster yourself. And, and even then it, it's a little bit cloaked in mystery. Right, right. How about, let's get to climate change. So you have, I guess I have two questions for you. One would be, when did this become sort of central to your analysis? So you've experienced those things in Katrina and then the BP oil spill, but when, did you experience them already with an understanding that this is taking place within the context of climate change? Um, yeah, so this is a great question. No, I didn't. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Maine. And so climate change was something that was discussed in school while I was growing up, it was like minimally, but it was mentioned. We had some awareness of it. Um, that was still like pre-Al Gore's book and or uh, documentary and everything. So it was still kind of, I, I mean, I was very young and it was like kind of early days in, in that climate conversation that was happening publicly. Um, and so when Katrina happened, climate change, like a connection to Katrina there was not on my radar at all. Um, again, it was like in high school when this happened. Um, but uh, even when I moved to New Orleans, there were a lot of groups that were in the city doing sustainability work and trying to integrate, uh, you know, putting solar panels on roofs. I worked with one nonprofit that was installing um, CFL light bulbs in all the houses in the city, right? There were all of these, you know, um, gardens being put in in people's yards once their houses were rebuilt. All of those kind of like traditional, very like environmental, like hippie sustainability like type uh, things were happening in the city. But I still viewed that as very separate. And when we did those things, it was very often connected to addressing concerns about poverty. So it was, you know, we're building this garden because they're living in a food desert and they don't have transportation to get to a grocery store, or we're putting solar panels on because it's going to lower their electricity bill. Um, and so that was kind of the framing that I was um, kind of, uh, that, that was a framing that I experienced while I was there. Um, when BP happened on the coast, that was when I personally had a shift. I was like a little late, like other people understood this to be clear. Um, but me personally, what it was definitely going to uh, the coast of Louisiana, seeing the extent of wetland loss uh, along the coast, understanding the kind of connections between erosion, sea level rise, the oil industry there, um, that kind of shifted my understanding of climate change as, um, you know, this uh, immediate threat. Um, it wasn't something that was just off kind of in the distance. And so really from that moment on, climate became pretty well integrated into everything I did. I, I kind of looked at Katrina in a slightly different way of, uh, you know, this isn't some random event that is never going to happen again. This is what the future looks like. Uh, and certainly once I started graduate school and started studying disasters, um, 
you know, <laughs> emergency management is on the front lines of all of this. And so it's not really possible to look at emergency management or to think about our risk and kind of the future of disasters without integrating climate change into that work. Do you think of climate change as sort of a potentially never ending disaster? Like just this cascading, like, how do you think of this as something that's just going to be happening? Like, routinely like in other words we read from the climate scientists that x amount of whatever's going to happen is already locked in so like these are things we're going to have to deal with hopefully mitigate respond and adapt in a way that's you know reasonable for everyone um but yeah i'm wondering how you think about that as like a never-ending disaster or yeah it's a, a tricky one i actually don't think of climate change as itself being a disaster i think of it as influencing every other disaster. So um, in, in the same way that I don't think of development as itself being a disaster, it, it's how development in high risk areas increases that risk. So it, it's kind of this like underlying factor rather than it itself a disaster, if that makes sense. And I, again, that's from like an emergency management perspective. If you're coming at it from a different angle, you may kind of interpret it differently. Um, so, you know, when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about how is climate change changing specific hazards? So how are hurricanes gonna be different? How is this affecting landslides how is this affecting rainfalls river flooding right but whatever the hazard is how is it affecting that the kind of secondary way i'm thinking about climate change is how does this increasing risk influence our ability to respond to things that happen so how is this kind of persistent uh cycle of disasters that we're in how does this lessen our capacity to respond to things that happen. So um, like, for example, when we think about climate disasters or when we think about climate change and disasters, we're often thinking about sea level rise causing regular flooding. We're thinking about hurricanes and how they're influenced. But I'm also thinking about what happens if we San Andreas fault goes off at the same time that we have a category five hurricane in Puerto Rico at the same time that New, New York City is uh, battling a high tide storm surge right like 10 years from now. This is our ability to respond to something like San Andreas, which isn't directly related to climate change, is going to be impacted by climate change. and all of the other kind of risk and disasters that we're having to focus on. So um, again, it's kind of that like underlying factor to everything else that's happening. So my next question is what year exactly was the last time your friend stopped calling? <laughs> because, <laughs> because as I listen to you talk about this, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, this is like, for we have friends who focus on just U.S. foreign policy, and all they do is cover drone strikes and counterinsurgency campaigns, and like that's like so. If you talk with them, it's like, what are you up to? And it's like, oh, I'm covering a, a genocide in Ethiopia, and then I'm also covering like a recent terrorist attack in Syria. It's like, oh my god. No, I'm jo I'm joking with you. Samantha. I just had to add some levity because it's like, yeah, as you're listing yeah. all of those off, it it makes me think that is potentially what the future looks like, and we need people actively planning and hopefully like bringing people from the community as to be a part of this too. I mean, what I think could, you know, really work well for communities where people feel like they have no connection to the federal government or anything like that. It's like 
getting them to be involved in this process, I think would be really helpful and like give people like a real purpose of like, we're preparing our community for something that's going to happen in the future or for things that we know are going to happen, whatever it is. Um, it seems like a worthwhile way, like a really useful way to engage people. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, there's been so much climate activism around the country in recent years, especially. And I think, which is great. Um, I think one other thing that we should be doing more of that, that kind of falls under this heading of climate activism is doing more of that climate adaptation work. There certainly are a ton of groups all over the country who are, you know, advocating for mitigation in their hazard mitigation in their communities who are doing work specifically on climate adaptation, especially in frontline communities around the country. Um, but I think a lot of those efforts are relatively small scale um, and don't really get a lot of attention and, and don't really have a lot of resources. Um, so one thing that I hope for the future and that we really need for the future is to um, see a, a lot more kind of local community engagement like you're describing uh, where, you know, people are thinking about what the unique climate risks, uh, climate related risks in their communities are and, you know, start this process of, of trying to navigate resources to address those risks. Uh, you, know, you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, but kind of the process of going to the federal government to try and get money to address these kinds of, of risks is really complicated and it takes a really long time. Uh, so, you know, anywhere that you can see a community that is already starting this process, who's already having these conversations, who are already identifying what their risks are and what those potential solutions could be, I think are kind of already starting out uh, ahead of some other communities. Um, so certainly more of that is desperately needed. Yeah, because we need, I know you know, in the past, some of the critiques with like big federal legislation like the New Deal was that you had the federal government, of course, had the resources, logistical capacity, money and manpower to make it happen, but that it wasn't properly utilizing like local networks, social bonds, relationships and knowledge that people have at the local level that could really make those efforts even even better. All right. I only have a few more questions for you. I wanted to we touched on this earlier, but you and it specifically mentions in your bio that you some of these disparities within the context of, of disasters and so on, but that you specifically write about uh, gender within that context. I wanted you to touch a little bit on that uh, and then a couple more quick questions or what hopefully are quick questions. I don't want to take too much of your time, so I appreciate it. Sure. Um, so when disasters happen, sometimes there is a tendency for, again, usually politicians to say something along the lines of disasters are great equalizers. We're all affected equally. And that could not be further from the truth. Uh, we are not all equally impacted by disaster. Um, we all have different experiences with disasters, the way we are able to access aid, access resources and the aftermath is different our ability to access you know funds to mitigate and prepare ahead of time are all different uh, and so kind of the traditional groups that we look towards in uh in the context of disasters as kind of having um either increased vulnerability or kind of unique needs as we would call it are um 
many communities of color, low income communities, um, people with disabilities, uh, the LGBT community, um, and uh, and among that list of groups are also uh, women tend to be more vulnerable as compared to men um, in, in various ways. And so when we think about the approach that we take to emergency management, it is a field that has um, traditionally and still is, although it's changing, been made up of older white men who come from military and first responder backgrounds. Um, and there has um, been uh, many efforts uh, lately to um, increase uh, diversity within emergency management itself um, and to start it, it kind of in step with that, start taking a greater uh, a, a greater uh, putting greater attention towards these differing needs as we see them manifest during disasters. So um, I uh, have done research on gender and disaster specifically. So looking at um, kind of the unique needs of women as it relates to response in terms of kind of like safety at community shelters, thinking about access to reproductive health care when people are um, displaced for longer periods of time, um, thinking uh, also uh, about domestic violence. Uh, we tend to see that in the aftermath and in recovery, there's an increased uh, rate of reporting of domestic violence. Um, and so making sure that like women's shelters, domestic violence shelters have uh, adequately prepared for disasters and that they have the resources that they need to meet those increasing needs in their community. Um, so really there's kind of <laughs> a never ending list of, uh, of changes that are, are needed in emergency management and kind of like shifts in, in thinking even of how we approach meeting people's needs before, during and after disasters and, and kind of, you know, recognizing these differences that exist. You're reading my mind because that's a perfect segue to the next question, which is you talked about this in an interview that I watched of yours and I think I thought it was great, um, but thinking about these disasters and people in them outside of the uh, scope of say like statistics or like money spent that it, this is actually like on a very deep human level impacts people their home sometimes displaced from a home of multiple generations if only for a few months someone's lived there it's like their home um, people's jobs upended people losing family members and that this is like you're talking about physical uh uh, psychological trauma, uh, also the sort of loss of social meaning and connection to people who are maybe moving out of state now because they can't live by you. It seems like this is so deep, the, the level to which these kinds of disasters uh, impact people, and that the response to that, of course, should be probably as holistic as we can make it. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, when you're kind of immersed in the disaster world, it can sometimes be easy to kind of view everything as numbers and think, you know, well, FEMA spending X number of dollars today compared to yesterday, what does that mean? Um, even just kind of, uh, you know, counting up these 
you know, sometimes in increasingly high death tolls that we've seen around the country and it can kind of sterilize what's happening and there can be this real kind of focused on, well, we gave them the money to recover, so it's fine. And that, that you know, glazes over the, the actual trauma of going through a disaster um, or, or even uh, the trauma associated with kind of this increasing risk. You mentioned those communities that, you know, people who have lived in coastal communities for generations and are now facing this reality of, we're not going to be able to live here for much longer. Some communities have already begun to move. Um, and the, the, the actual pain that comes with that, it's not only about writing somebody a check so they can afford to move somewhere else. You have to look at this bigger picture and look at the mental, cultural, social impacts that are associated with that. Um, you know, even when we're, you know, having these broader climate conversations and, you, you know, you'll hear somebody be like, well, Miami's going to have to move. And it's like, well... And there's a lot of people who live there. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a lot of history there. That, that's, uh, that's not something we just like wave a hand and do. There, right. There's a lot that has to be factored Not in to mention the places and, they might go to. I mean, this is right, another thing. Course. Right. Yeah, no. Right. It's, it's incredibly complex. And um, I don't think that we always do a great job at um, kind of addressing those complexities and and really kind of thinking through what this actually means to have people leave the the places that they've grown up that their families live not to mention where their job is you know where their kids go to school all their kids friends are there um you know these are these are really difficult conversations and and kind of this idea as especially as we're looking ahead to climate risk that you know, everyone's just gonna up and move and <laughs> then it'll be fine is um is is not you know realistic based on um kind of what we know about the the trauma associated with the these kinds of events so the last question i have is who is doing this well and how much do you look to other countries um in other contexts to look at like who's doing this well and then are there like states municipalities or areas in the u.s that you see doing this better than others yeah, this is a great question. So internationally, um, we tend to look at um, Japan as having a pretty um, kind of advanced um, approach to integrating preparedness into their culture. They do um, a ton with like earthquake preparedness and kind of educating um educating children like really early on about how to respond to these types of events. Um, so Japan's really good uh, in terms of preparedness. Um, you, you know, other countries are kind of uh, comparable to what we do in the US, Australia, the UK. Um, many of the same issues we have in the US related to these issues are, are the same issues that they have in their countries as well. Um, I do not know that there's any country in the world who's like doing this perfectly. Um, I think, you know, every country kind of has their own unique strengths here and there. Um, but everybody, you know, faces challenges uh, when it comes to emergency management. Um, in the United States, um, 
you know, there are states that deal with a very kind of specific kind of hazard and tend to do that pretty well. Um, so for example, Florida is pretty good with hurricanes. They've kind of got a, an approach down in terms of the response of how can we evacuate there are also times when they're not good um, or when things don't go well. Hurricane Michael um, most recently in Florida is an example of, you know, uh, many people not evacuating in time and um, certainly the recovery in uh, Florida leaves much to be desired um, as with other places. Um, again, kind of de depending on you know, the locality, you know, New York City emergency management has, you know, millions and millions of dollars in their budget. They have hundreds of people who work in their agency. And so they tend to do better in responses because they have those resources. Again, you can look at New York at, with COVID, you know, obviously there are um, issues there as well. So I don't think that there's necessarily any one place that is doing this perfectly 100% of the time. Um, some states tend to do better than others, but um, it's it's you know the issues with an emergency management are are pretty universal. Well, Dr. Samantha Montano, we appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Montano is an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. She is also the co-founder of the Center for Climate Adaptation Research, and her latest book is Disasterology dispatches from the front line of the climate crisis. Make sure to check it out. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Right on. Thanks for coming. Take care. Bye. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C Media. Org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.